Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of January 28th, 2023, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And tonight, I really feel weighed down by the multiple horrors in the headlines and this sense that history is a nightmare from which we cannot wake up. A headline from today's AFP wire service, Holocaust Memorial Day commemorated amid horrors of Russia-Ukraine war. And on the scene report from Auschwitz-Birkenau in Poland, where the official ceremony was held, with Russian officials excluded this year for obvious reasons, a survivor by the name of Zislava Vodarczyk is quoted as saying, quote, Standing here today at this place of remembrance, Birkenau, I follow with horror the news from the East that the Russian army, which liberated us here, is waging a war there in Ukraine. Why? Why? End quote. Pyotr Chevinsky, director of the Auschwitz Museum, compared Nazi crimes to those the Russians have committed in Ukrainian towns like Buka and Mariupol, saying they were inspired by a similar sick megalomania and that people must not be indifferent. Being silent means giving voice to the perpetrators, Kavinsky said. Remaining indifferent is tantamount to condoning murder, end quote. But very predictably, Israeli flags were left at the memorials at the vigil, as shown in a photo accompanying the story. So how many hideous ironies are at work here? Israeli flags laid at the vigil as Israel itself escalates toward genocide. Russia is meanwhile crossing the genocidal threshold in Ukraine in the name of denazification and a disturbingly large proportion of my friends on the left seem to buy it. Okay, as we presumably are all aware, the Palestinian Authority announced January 26th, two days ago as I speak, that it will halt security cooperation with Israel following an Israeli army raid on Jenin refugee camp on the West Bank that killed nine Palestinians, including a 61-year-old woman. A grandmother named Majida Obaid, with at least 20 others wounded. It was Israel's single deadliest operation in the West Bank in years, supposedly, of course, targeting a militant cell that Israel said was planning an attack. One member of the Knesset, Israel's parliament, Almag Cohen of the Jewish Power Party, a member of the new far-right coalition that has just taken power in Israel, 
tweeted in response to the raid, quote, Nice and professional work by the fighters in Janine. Keep killing them, unquote. This all inevitably recalls the Israeli military's siege and invasion of Janine during the Second Intifada in April 2022, in which at least 52 Palestinians were killed by the count of human rights groups, including 22 civilians, some of whom were crushed to death in the rubble of their own homes over 100 homes being demolished in the massacre, leaving an estimated 4,000 people homeless, about a quarter of the population of Janine at that time. Militants in the Gaza Strip inevitably responded to the new Janine raid with rocket fire on southern Israel the following day, Friday, January 27th, and Israel, of course, retaliated with airstrikes on Gaza. Hours after that, seven people were shot dead at a synagogue in the Neve Yaakov, Jewish neighborhood of occupied East Jerusalem, heavily inhabited by Israeli settlers. The gunmen apparently waited outside the synagogue for Sabbath to begin and then opening fire. He was killed by police who said he was a 20-year-old Palestinian man from East Jerusalem, who had acted alone. Now, this kind of criminal reprisal plays right into the hands of the Israeli propaganda that all Palestinian resistance is, quote, genocidal terror groups, quote unquote. That's the current propaganda buzzword being used over and over again by media reps for the new far-right government, which has just taken power, led once again by Benjamin Netanyahu. But use of this term, genocidal terror groups, by the Israeli government, especially now, is akin to Russia carrying out its war of aggression and extermination in the name of denazification. The new government in Israel is openly committed to annexation of the occupied West Bank, and some of the new cabinet ministers have long been advocates of a transfer, as it is called, forced relocation of the Palestinians from the West Bank across the border into Jordan. That mirror image of the drive the Jews into the sea talk on the Palestinian side. The difference is, of course, that the Palestinian leadership, including Hamas, by the way, with the 2017 changes to their charter, have publicly abandoned and disavowed this extremist position, while the Israeli leadership has been moving toward embracing it steadily, for the past generation at least and now seems to be crossing a critical line in this ladder of escalation toward a genocidal solution. And of course, the fundamental contradiction driving the whole conflict is the expropriation of the Palestinian people of their lands and the denial of their self-determination by Israel. And that reality 
is not changed by any use of criminal tactics by some on the Palestinian side. And disturbingly, this all comes as the U.S. and Israel have launched their largest joint military exercise ever in a case of very, very bad timing for Joe Biden. The live fire exercise, codenamed Juniper Oak 2023, includes 100 U.S. aircraft flying alongside some 40 Israeli aircraft. The USSS George H.W. Bush Carrier Strike Group is also taking part in the exercise in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, which is obviously intended as a signal to Iran, the big mutual enemy of the U.S. and Israel. All this also comes just as U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is to be traveling to Israel and the West Bank this weekend. And it also follows a visit last week by U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who met in Jerusalem on January 18th with Israel's President Isaac Herzog, signaling continued U.S. support for the new far-right government, despite the Biden administration's supposed opposition to its policies, such as settlement expansion and annexation of the West Bank. And interestingly, Jake Sullivan's trip coincided with Israel's eviction of a wildcat settler outpost in what Israel calls the Samaria region of the West Bank, reviving biblical toponymy. In this move, Netanyahu apparently overrode the authority of his finance minister, Bezayel Smotrich, who also holds the post in the defense ministry with oversight of Israel's West Bank civil administration, quote-unquote, an Orwellian term, as it is actually not civil, but run by the military, and the official name for that military, the Israeli Defense Forces, is also Orwellian because it is actually an occupation force. The Palestinians call it the IOF, Israeli Occupation Forces, rather than IDF, Israeli Defense Forces. Smotrich of the Religious Zionist Party is one of the most hardline figures in the new Israeli government and has been an open advocate of a transfer of the Palestinian population from the West Bank to Jordan. The Wildcat Outpost, dubbed Or-Kaim, was evicted by Israeli troops a second time two days later, after settlers began to rebuild it, and it was widely assumed that the removal of the outpost was undertaken as a demonstration to appease Sullivan on his visit. The headline in the Israeli daily Haaretz read, quote, Netanyahu evacuated West Bank outpost to show Biden he's the boss in new government, end quote. Simultaneously, however, the Israeli government announced that it is preparing to demolish the Bedouin village of Khan al-Amar on the eastern outskirts of Jerusalem, home to at least 180 people. Dozens of Palestinians protested near the village on January 23rd, 
after the announcement by National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir, leader of the Jewish Power Party, who also said that he would visit the site with Smotrich and other cabinet ministers. In making the announcement, Ben-Gavir explicitly invoked the eviction of Or Kaim, saying the government, quote, will not hold Jews to one legal standard and Arabs to another, end quote. Israel's Supreme Court approved removal of Khan al-Amar in September 2018, leaving it open to being demolished at any time. The Israeli government maintains the village was built without a permit, but the occupational authorities make it practically impossible for Palestinians, and especially Bedouin, to obtain permits in East Jerusalem and in the fully Israeli-administered Area C, which covers more than 60% of the West Bank. Khan Alamar lies within a key corridor stretching from Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley, where Israel aims to expand settlements and link them with new roads, effectively cutting the West Bank into two. Khan Alamar residents say they will resist their removal. Quote, our fate is to remain in this area, unquote. Village spokesperson Eid Jahalin told Al Jazeera, For years, Israel has refused to connect Khan Alamar to the electrical grid and to roads and has repeatedly demolished structures at the site. Now, Israel is planning to demolish every single structure in the community and expel the residents. Israeli human rights group Betzalem remarked after the 2018 Supreme Court decision, quote, Demolition and transfer are a war crime for which Israel's government and military leadership will bear primary criminal liability, along with the judges who authorized it, end quote. While Israel has long pursued a de facto annexation policy on the West Bank, this is now made explicit in the platform of the new ruling coalition, which states, quote, the nation of Israel has a natural right to the land of Israel. In light of the belief in that aforementioned right, the prime minister will formulate and promote policies within whose framework sovereignty will be applied to Judea and Samaria, end quote. And I just now noticed on the website of the Betzalem Human Rights Group that there is a second village that Israel is preparing to imminently evict and demolish, that of Masafer Yata in the southern West Bank, whose lands are being seized by the Israeli military as a firing zone. The <coughs> civil administration says it will offer the residents an alternative location to which they will be expelled. Betzalem responded, quote, forcible transfer of protected persons in occupied territory is a war crime. Therefore, the Israeli offer of an alternative is meaningless. It is a violent threat that leaves the residents with no choice, end quote. Okay, a few words about all of this. 
The eviction of Or Kaim settlement outpost was clearly a Potemkin eviction, so to speak, of an illegal, quote-unquote, settlement outpost to coincide with the visit of Jake Sullivan. Just as the occupation prepares to evict a Bedouin Palestinian village deemed to be illegal, quote-unquote. Note, all settlements are, of course, illegal under international law. I used the term wildcat for that reason, meaning not approved by the Israeli authorities. But all settlements in occupied territory are illegal. And the notion that a Bedouin village on the occupied West Bank is illegal under Israeli law is an obvious perversity. Okay, the Bedouin are a subgroup of the general Palestinian Arab population who are traditionally nomadic and really have the best claim to being an indigenous people. They are also facing eviction from their lands and villages within Israel, especially in the Negev Desert in the south. To make way for new housing complexes explicitly slated for Jews, And as for this Judea and Samaria and land of Israel talk, it is an abomination and absurdity to base a contemporary state on the writings of the Old Testament and to summarily dismiss the rights and claims of those, the Palestinians, who have been inhabiting the land for many centuries between biblical times and our own. One would hope it is superfluous to say this. A glimmer of hope on this landscape. Anti-government protests have been mounting in Israel each week since the new far-right administration took power at year's end. The night of January 21st, last Saturday, saw over 100,000 march in Tel Aviv while thousands more took to the streets in Jerusalem, Haifa, and other cities. The protests have won support from pillars of Israel's traditional political establishment, as well as the left opposition, including the formerly ruling Blue and White Coalition, which is accusing Netanyahu of a coup d'etat, quote-unquote, Especially at issue for them is the new government's planned sweeping judicial reform, under which a so-called override clause, quote-unquote, would allow a simple majority of Knesset votes to supersede a Supreme Court ruling. This reform would mean that no opposition members would be required to override rulings effectively gutting Israel's checks and balances system. Yeah, so much for all that Middle East-only democracy propaganda, I guess. Netanyahu did fire Arya Derry, leader of the Shas Religious Party, from his post as Interior Minister January 22nd, complying with a Supreme Court decision ordering him to do so. The high court ruled that Derry was not eligible to serve due to his backlog of convictions 
including having served 22 months in prison on charges of fraud, bribery, and breach of trust in 1999. However, Jewish power leader Itamar Ben-Gavir was allowed to take his post as national security minister, having been cleared by electoral authorities to hold public office despite having been convicted of inciting racism, quote-unquote, with slogans such as expel the Arab enemy, quote-unquote, in 2007. He is also an extreme cultural conservative who has been outspoken against gay rights. Surprise, surprise. But very interestingly, and very hopefully, An explicitly anti-Zionist element has been seen at the rallies, made up of both Jews and Palestinians. This anti-apartheid bloc, as they call it, still small but apparently tolerated, is calling for a secular state and decolonization of Palestinian lands. While Israeli flags and slogans such as Israel, we have a problem, have predominated at the protest, some demonstrators have raised the Palestinian flag in deliberate defiance of an order from National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir to remove all Palestine flags from public places within Israel. So, this is a very hopeful sign that perhaps in the current polarization in Israel, an anti-Zionist, or at least non-Zionist or post-Zionist position is being legitimized at long last. Just as here in the United States, it was under the fascistic Trump that the country finally made some advances, at least in reckoning with its legacy of racial injustice. But the odious, tanky propagandist, Max Blumenthal, has, of course, got to find some way of dismissing the Israeli protesters and also demonstrating his fealty to the oppressive regime in Iran. He tweets a picture of an Israeli protester holding a placard that reads, Iran is here, quote, unquote. And then he goes on to write, quote, This sign from a Tel Aviv protest against the right-wing Israeli coalition distills the contradictions of liberal Zionism. Israel's enlightened public merely wants a more internationally acceptable apartheid regime and transfers blame for Zionist racism onto the official enemy, unquote. No, it doesn't, you fucking idiot. It doesn't do that at all. It doesn't blame Iran for Israel's current ultra-reactionary direction. It calls out the Israeli government on its hypocrisy in opposing Iran, while itself seeking to impose a religious fundamentalist state. And uh, speaking of protests, the independent... Human Rights Activist News Agency, Hrana, on January 16th, released statistics finding that 522 protesters, including 70 children and youths, have been killed in Iran since the start of the national uprising in September. 
authorities have arrested some 20,000 people, including at least 168 children and youths. Of those detained, 110 are under impending threat of a death sentence. Four protesters have already been executed. Human Rights Watch additionally reported that authorities have fired assault rifles on protesters and have subjected those in detention to torture, mistreatment, and sexual abuse. And as we should all be aware, there has definitely been an ethnic dimension to the protest in Iran. This all began when Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman who had been arrested for defying the hijab rules, died in police custody on September 16th, apparently after being beaten and excluded and usurped peoples within Iran, especially the Kurds in the northwest and the Baluk in the southeast, have played a leading and disproportionate role in the protests. But here's some very interesting news about another excluded minority in Iran, the Baha'i. On August 2nd of last year, security forces laid siege to a village in Iran's north, demolishing houses and farms belonging to members of the persecuted Baha'i faith. Over 200 troops were deployed to Rashanku in Mazandaran province, blocking the road into the village and confiscating residents' cell phones before commencing demolition of several properties. However, video footage of heavy machinery demolishing buildings was posted to social media by the Baha'i International Community. The organization reported that six homes were destroyed and over 20 hectares of land were confiscated. Troops used tear gas and fired shots in the air to disperse residents who gathered to protest the demolitions. The demolitions were ordered by a local court on the basis that the lands in question were formally titled to Baha'i institutions, which were banned in 1979 by the Islamic Republic. In 2021, some 50 Baha'i homes were demolished in the village of Evel, also in Mazandaran province. The confiscated lands were turned over to state-owned companies. And here's a particular irony. Iranian authorities arrested several Baha'i followers last year, raiding their households and shutting down their businesses. The intelligence ministry said that those detained were linked to the Baha'i Universal House of Justice in Haifa, Israel, and had engaged in intelligence gathering on behalf of the body, with the implication being, of course, that they were somehow linked to the Israeli state. This is empty propaganda. The Universal House of Justice is the nine-member supreme ruling body of the Baha'i faith. The global institutions of the Baha'i faith have been based in what is today Israel since the 1860s, when the territory was Ottoman Palestine. The universalist and pacifistic Baha'i movement originated in Iran, but its leadership was exiled to Palestine following a wave of harsh repression against the faith 
by the Qajar dynasty. Nonetheless, Iranian authorities today stigmatize the Baha'i as agents of Israel. And what makes this such a perfect irony is that what Iran is doing to the Baha'is in these cases obviously mirrors what Israel is doing to the Palestinians and Bedouin, even if it is not equivalent in the scale of brutality. It is still a very clear analogy. And land and water rights have also been at issue in the protest in recent months and years by the Awazi Arab people of Iran's southwestern Khuzestan province, another struggle we've been closely following on the counter-vortex. So I'll know that we are making some progress in this world. When the protesters against the right-wing regime in Israel explicitly view themselves in solidarity with the protesters against the occupation on the West Bank, and both see themselves in solidarity with the protesters in Iran, who in turn embrace the demands for land recovery and self-determination by the Kurds, Baluk, Baha'is, and Awazi. And I must add that those commemorating the Holocaust in Europe abandon the Israeli flag and that those on the American left opposing U.S. aid to Israel also forthrightly oppose Putin and his war of aggression. That's when I'll know we're making some progress in this world. And man, oh man, do we ever need some progress at this particular moment. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org org, where everything I have been discussing tonight is extensively blogged up, hyperlinked, and documented. Please support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going. Even a buck or two a week makes a big difference. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.